Welcome to the New City Fellowship West End Sermon Podcast. We hope and pray this message equips, empowers, and encourages you. And now, today's sermon. I'd invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and if you were here last week, we started a new series looking at liberty, Christian liberty. In other words, we have freedom in Christ, we have uh, uh, ways to live out what we believe, and typically there's two ways that we mess this up. One way we mess that up is by falling off on the side of legalism. So we say, God has changed my life, and so I'm going to figure out how to live this out with lots and lots of rules that I'll impose on myself and I'll impose on other people. So that's one side of the ditch if you were going to fall off. But the other side of the ditch that we can mess up when we think about Christian liberty or Christian freedom is what we'll call license or licentiousness. In other words, we can say, Christ made me free, bet, I'm going to do whatever I want. I, can, I have all the freedom in the world. I can live how I want. I'm so free that I am just going to be out here wiling. And so we don't want to fall on one side, and we don't want to fall on the other. Today we're going to focus more on the license side of things. In Galatians, man, Galatians is such an awesome book. It might be Paul's most frustrated letter of all the epistles. He's like, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? You idiots, like, how did you get this wrong? Why did you stop going the way that you were going, the way that I taught you? And in the midst of this incredibly frustrated Paul, we get the most profound teaching on freedom. Maybe the text on Christian freedom. There's some others, you know, 2 Corinthians 3, there's other passages, but certainly Galatians 5, 1 might take the cake. And so if you're there, you can say Amen. And if you're not there, catch up. All right, so we're just going to start with Galatians 5.1, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time in 13 through 16. God's word says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And now we'll jump down to 13. It says, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Shout out to the ladies. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16 says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is God's word. Let's open in a time of prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your word. Lord, where to whom shall we go but you have the words of eternal life? We pray that you would take this word, that you would apply it to our hearts, to our minds, to our hands, to the way that we live. And we pray that it would not come back null or void, Lord, but that you, by your power, by the power of your spirit, would multiply it, that it would grow in depth and width and height. 
and that what would happen in here wouldn't stay in here, that it would overflow into the west side, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, our schools, and that we would be changed by the preaching and power of your word, Lord. Give us clarity in terms of listening, clarity in terms of speech, clarity for eyes to see, hear, and understand your good and holy word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, don't you love a class where you get the answers before the test? Somebody said amen. Amen. So I'm not an academic, but I've been in academic settings. We work things out. And one of my favorite classes of all time was Sociology 101 in undergrad, my freshman year. And you can put a picture up of uh, Follinger Hall. That's the University of Illinois at Follinger Hall. That's what my uh, Sociology 101 class looked like. And the reason why I appreciated this teaching style, there's lots and lots of teaching styles, so uh, lots of methods, lots of methodologies, but, but one of the ways that this teacher taught is she would give us all the questions that she would be teaching on for that day, before the day, and so we could print out the questions, bring them to class, and she would use those questions little by little, one by one, to walk through the lecture. And so if you were paying attention, if you were listening well, if you were attentive to what was happening, she would say the question, and there would be an answer shortly after that you could just kind of jot down. And you know what she did? When it was time for tests on the trimester or the semester or whatever it was, she would take questions from those lessons, and then those were the ones that ended up on the test. There was no surprise. There was no, I got you. I'm not trying to trick you. We're not trying to come off from the left side or over here or over there. It's simply questions that she's walked us through already in that class. I love that class. I got an A in that class. Shout out to that teacher. I had all the answers before the test. What's happening here is Paul is giving us all the answers for a church plant before we get to the test. What do I mean by that? Well, this early church plant, the church at Galatia, has fallen victim to rivalries and dissension. They're at each other, at each other, excuse me, at each other's throats, in part, in large part, because of their misunderstanding of Christian liberty, a misunderstanding of how to live out the freedom that they have in Christ. And so God, through Paul, has given us the answers with this church that 2,000 years later, a church planted on the west side of St. Louis would have great freedom to innovate, contextualize, to try new things, to do all these different things, and yet, without making the same mistakes, without messing up the way that they did, passing the test. Amen? So how will we take the answers that God has given us through the Galatian church to pass our test? That's going to guide our time today. We're going to look at three ways. Everyone say three ways. First, we're going to look at the call to freedom. Second, we'll look at the corruption of freedom. And finally, we'll look at the commitment for freedom. And there are a number of students in here, so I just want to apologize for all the test language. I don't want to give you anxiety. You guys have tests coming up. You're like, ooh, I'm trying to get away from all that stuff. And here we are talking about tests in school in uh, church. But uh, hopefully we can walk through it together. Amen? Amen? So first, the call to freedom. The call to freedom. What is the call to freedom? We are free... 
from fulfilling the law, the Old Testament law, all the rules and regulations that God has put forth, we are free from fulfilling those. Look at verse 13. Right in the front it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. So what does this mean? Is God just out there saying, you're free, you're free. He's just calling out that you have freedom. No, not exactly. Well, Paul is building on an idea that he started earlier in Galatians 2. In Galatians 2.16, he says, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is that you've been justified by Christ, and because of that justification, you are free from the penalty of the law. All right, we're we're getting high theology right now. What is justification? What is justification? Well, Westminster Shorter Catechism says, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What does that mean? (laughs) That's my Westminster Shorter Catechism. Yes, still got it, baby. Yes. No, what, what is justification? What does that have to do with freedom? Well, let's talk about it. Say you were flying down Del Mar. In your car, you're, you're just hitting it. I'm talking about pedal to the floor. You are flying down Del Mar towards King's Highway. And you're speeding. I mean, we're talking 90 miles an hour in a 30. And you're just, you're just going. You're, you're on a mission. And sure enough, behind you, you see, boop, boop, you see those lights, right? You see them flash in your rear view. You're like, oh, man. <sighs> you pull over because, you're, you know, you're not going to run away from the police, are you? You weren't going to run away from the police. So you pull over, Right? And the officer approaches and knocks on the window and says, do you know why I pulled you over? And you say, yes. I was driving fast. I was speeding. I was going 90 and a 30. And he says, that's right. That's right. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't impound the car and take you to jail right now. Give me one good reason. And you point back to the person behind you. If it's your sister or your wife or a friend who's clutching the seats, sweating and breathing. (laughs) You say, there's a reason why I'm speeding. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. Matter of fact, you're free to go and I want to give you an escort all the way to BJC so your wife can have this baby or your friend can have this baby. Why do I tell this story? He admitted, you admitted that you broke the law, Right? Why were you able to go free? There was a justification. There was a reason why you don't go to jail, that you didn't walk away in handcuffs. There's a reason why you got to go free. There's a justification for your freedom. And what Paul is teaching us is that you've been justified by Christ, which allows you to go free. And so he's not saying, I didn't commit a penalty, or I I didn't commit a sin. He's not saying I didn't commit the crime, and neither did you. He said, Officer, I was driving 90 and a 30. We did a confession just a few minutes ago, right? When, when uh, Parker led us, we confess that we don't love and live the way that we're supposed to. Christians confess. We don't say we didn't commit the crime. We know that we committed the crime. So why would we go free? Because Jesus has already paid the cost. Jesus has already paid the cost. It's not if I did this, that, or the other, I was out there dirty doing this thing. No, I admit that I did those things. I did that thing. I was not living in line in a way that I should go free. But Jesus paid the cost. 
Jesus paid it all and therefore I'm free to go. This is my justification. This is the reason why I have freedom. Nothing that I earn, nothing that I merit, nothing that I did in and of myself. He paid it all and this is why I'm free. Hallelujah. And something that happens with, with us when we have this freedom, and maybe you're kind of feeling this way right now, is, yeah, but you can't drive like that. You shouldn't act like that. If, if, you're, if you're free, you should live a certain way. If we're free, it doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. We are free. We are justified. The penalty is paid. But why would I try to live right if the penalty has already been paid? That brings us to our second point. And this is where we're going to camp out the most here. Our second point is the corruption of freedom. The corruption of freedom. So we ask, what is the corruption of freedom? It means that we are not freed to harm one another. We are not freed. We have not been given license, licentiousness, to harm one another. Look again at verse 13. You are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Flesh, what is the flesh? It's our sin nature. And because our sin nature is so pervasive, it's so active, it's so trying to claw at the freedom that we have in the spirit, it will try to subversively abuse and use our sense of freedom in order to undermine and destroy the church. Let's talk about this for a second. This word opportunity, everyone say opportunity. opportunity. In the NIV, they, they use the language indulge the flesh, which might be a little bit more helpful. Essentially, it is a military word for a base of operation. It's kind of saying your home base, your safe space to launch attacks from. And so what this is saying is that the enemy will use your sense of freedom. I, I'm free in order to launch a tech, a, a attack on, on the other side, to infiltrate the church, to have the church be at each other's throats, to run into one another. And so our freedom becomes this launch point for attack behind enemy lines that is in the church. All right, let's talk about this for a second. Again, we're going to camp out here for a little bit. How does this actually happen? Well, when you think about Christian liberties, these are often gray areas. I think you got some feedback going, ringing pretty, pretty good, at least on my side. Um, these are gray areas where you have to land on a topic. So things that aren't explicitly in Scripture, and so you can kind of wrestle with, all right, should we do it this way? Should we do it that way? How are we going to live out our faith? And in those gray areas, you have to decide one or the other, and feelings get hurt. And in that way, the enemy will use our freedom, whatever we decide, in order to attack the church. All right, what does that mean? I know I'm talking way on abstract. Let, let's just talk about it, all right? And so what we're going to do is talk about a few case studies, okay? And you guys remember when you were a kid, maybe you read um, Choose Your Own Adventure books? Anybody use one of those? All right, a few of us. Shout out to a few of us. So what we're going to do is you get to pick the direction that this sermon goes, all right? All right, so we have three case studies. You can pull up that next slide that has the case studies. Case study A is going to be um, a college ministry 
looking at clothing. You pull up that next slide. There, nope, keep going. All right, case studies. A is a college ministry wrestling with clothing. B is weed in worship. Someone said, uh-oh, uh-oh, here we go. Weed in worship, this is another case study. And finally, uh, the third case study is white Jesus in the children's ministry. White Jesus in the children's ministry. All right, so get ready to lock in your vote. In a moment, I'm going to say, if you want A, then you'll say a hearty amen. If you want B, then I'll say one, two, three, B, and then you'll say amen. If you want C, then you'll choose uh, C. All right, so if you want to use the case study, college clothing, then say amen on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, one person. Shout out to Terrence. Sorry, Terrence. I don't think it's going to work out. All right, if you want to talk about weed in worship, say amen on the count of three. One, two, three. All right, if you want to talk about white Jesus in the children's ministry, say amen on the count of three. One, two, three. Oh, uh-oh, white Jesus. It was close. It was close. All right. We'll try it again. Weed and worship, say amen. amen. White Jesus, say amen. amen. All right, that was a little louder. All right, so we're going to go with white Jesus. If you want to talk more about these, then, then we can do that. But we're just going to, we're going to use these case studies, these fake stories, uh, as an opportunity to walk through this, to wrestle through this. All right, so white Jesus. I had it heard, it was told to me that you should never, ever, ever have white Jesus depicted in children's ministry stuff. And we're not talking about the second commandment, no carbon image. We're not talking about that. We're just saying the fact that Jesus wasn't white. Amen? Amen. Jesus wasn't white, right? He probably, right? All right. Jesus wasn't white. And so you should depict him accurately. And if you're not depicting him accurately, then you're probably using this art as a tool of oppression by promoting white supremacy within Christianity. And so you should not have any pictures of Jesus for young people, for kids, as white. And I was like, yeah, yes, that is 100% right. Probably about five months ago, then I heard a podcast and it was a pastor and a art historian who had written a number of books. And the topic somehow came up about white Jesus in children's ministry and, and in paintings as a whole. And he began to describe historically throughout the years, throughout all of human history, how the spread of the gospel was reflected in art. And so I want to get it right, what he said. He said on this podcast... As the gospel spread, people would paint Jesus in the likeness of their culture. In European settings, he would be painted European. In Tibet, Jesus was on a tapestry looking similar to a Buddhist monk. African depictions of Jesus have him presented as a black man. There was an evangelistic goal in representing Jesus according to the nationality of the artist as one who is like the people to help them understand that Christ came for you. Now, I was like, hold up, what? And, and so as we think through, is this always right? Is this always wrong? You actually have to make a decision about how you're going to live. As the church, we have to make a decision about what we're going to do, 
right? Uh, One way is going to win out and the other way is not going to win out. But we just said we don't necessarily know is one way always right, is one way always wrong. And so practically what the church has to do is make a decision that we're going to go this way. We're going to do this thing. And so what that means is two people in the church or two factions in the church, two groups of people in the church want to get their way and they both can't get through that little narrow door, only one. You can only do one of those. It's a binary. And from that, people get mad at each other. They bite and devour each other. There's conflict, and they tear churches apart. They're using their freedom to say, I'm free to do this thing. Why would we have white Jesus? I'm free to do historically how they did it. Why would we do white Jesus? And we would have a conflict over this, over this thing. And so it's no wonder that Paul would say, In verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And so once again, the picture are are two animals, two beastly animals who would be in conflict with one another. They have to go through this narrow doorway. I think about dogs. You already know I think about dogs all day long, right? So I think about dogs trying to get out of an entryway. Do you know where dog fights happen? There's food, right, food aggression. There's possessions where they would try to take hold of of things, of of toys or even people. But one of the lesser known places where fights happen with dogs is in entryways. If there's a narrow channel for only one dog to get through at the time, one dog will say, this is, I'm, I'm going, I'm about to do it. And they'll bite the other dog and try to get through. And then this dog will bite that dog back and they'll try to get through. And what ends up happening is a dog fight. And as I was preparing for this message, I started to look online to illustrate this, to show pictures of dogs in conflict with one another. And let me just say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to show that. Because what I didn't realize I was going to see is dogs with chunks taken out of them, maimed and and just just terrible, awful stuff. And so we're not going to show that. But just think about how much more in the church. You know, there's so much church hurt. There's so much conflict within the church. We leave one denomination to go to another denomination. We leave one church to go to another church. To go to another church. Because we bite and devour one another because of our freedom. And so this is why Paul would say in verse 26, I know it's not on your bulletin, why he would say in verse 26, let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. What is he talking about there? Well, typically with dogs, after they're in the doorway, then the fight's over with and you move on. But what happens with people in the church is once you get on the other side of the doorway, you're still salty about this situation. And so what happens is, let's go back to the example of of, uh, white Jesus. Let's say we say we're not going to have white Jesus. Provoking one another would be the person that got their way or the group that got their way walking around with a shirt that says Jesus was only black or Jesus was only a brown man or or provoking, like kind of holding it over one another. And the way we would envy one another is if you didn't get if you didn't get your way and you would be upset about that and and hold that against the people who did get their way. Does this make sense? I know I know there's a lot going on here. This is this is like like hopefully somewhat practical but they're biting and devouring one another. And this is what happens in the church, even a church plant, even in the church at Galatia. And Lord willing, we want to learn so that we don't have this and we can pass the test 
in the West End. What's the point? Paul's point is that it's not actually about right or wrong. It's not about if we should do it this way or we should do it that way. Paul's point is that it's showing these these conflict areas, these points of contention are revealing what's going on in your heart and if you're motivated by love or not. Look at verse 13. He says, through love, serve one another. And I just want to stop there for a second. He says, you're free, you have freedom, and that word serve is the equivalent of being bound. It would be the the word for slave, enslaved by. So he's saying you're free to be enslaved by your brother or sister in Christ, which is a wild thing to consider. For the whole law, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, you are freed to be bound to serve one another. You're freed to love even when it's at your own expense. The the perspective here is to say, I'd rather suffer through this with you than to get my way without you. I'm so committed to who you are that we're brothers and sisters together in the church that I'd rather suffer and not get my way but still have you than to get the way that I want to do it. You get the Heisman, you get out of here, and, and, and I'm without you. And isn't this exactly what Jesus does for us? That Jesus would go to the cross and say, I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to go through this. Whatever it takes to have you, that's what I'll do. I I need to have you. I'm going to go through this with you rather than not go through it and not have you. This is love. There's no greater love than this than someone who would give their life up for their brother. All right, some of us, rightly would say, but Steve, when things don't go my way, I do not feel very loving, right? We have one of these conflicts. We have one of these issues. When that happens, I don't, I'm not motivated by love. I'm salty. I'm upset. I'm, I'm that provoking or envy. This brings us to our last point. The commitment for freedom. What is the commitment for freedom? God promises to walk us into love. The commitment for freedom is that God promises to walk us into love. Verse 16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Of the flesh. And, and so what, what Paul is talking about, this walking, this leading, what, what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is setting a path for Christians to take. And the response of Christian believers is to walk alongside the Spirit, with the Spirit, the, the path that He has for us. That is the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, he talks about being led by the Spirit. 25, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And so it begs the question. Where is God going? Where is the Holy Spirit taking us? What the Bible teaches is that God is walking toward love, demonstrated to you and demonstrated through you. This idea of walking is the restored relationship of God and humanity that we see in the garden where God walks with Adam in the cool of the day. We have that access to 
God. We have that access to God living in us. If you, if you confess with Jesus it, 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 that Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart, then what that means is the Spirit of God dwells in you. You have access to this counselor who's going to walk you through all the dissensions, all the divisions, all the difficult things that we go through even in the church. And so, of course, we have to ask the question, how do the dogs get through the door without fighting? How does that happen? So at times we've been dog sitting three, four. I don't think we've gotten to five yet, but uh, <laughs> yet. And so the way that actually works is I'll stand at the door and we'll have four dogs outside of the door. And I'll say, Weston, go. Della, go. Max, go. How is it that we can all get through one by one? It's the choosing of the spirit, the prompting of the master, the prompting of the leader that only comes through trust and relationship. And what that means is if you're not walking with the spirit, it's very difficult to trust that I'm not getting my way and that's going to be okay and for my good. It's difficult to sit back and watch other people go before you or their way go in front of me. And I have to step back and say, no, we're not going to do it my way. But when you trust, when you have a trusting relationship with the spirit of the living God, then he can tell you no. You know what a counselor means when we talk about the, the paraclete? You, you, you familiar with this term, the paraclete, the, the, uh, uh, the Greek term for the counselor, the spirit? Para is soft, like paralegal, come alongside. It means, it means to walk with or, or, or come with. And, and kaleo, or, or, or that, that is a hard truth. And so what that means is you can receive hard truth because the spirit is alongside you. You can receive the hard thing because, because God is bringing it to you in a soft way. You trust that he has your good in mind. And so what this means for us is if we're ever going to do this church thing together well, we have to trust the master to let us in. One day this one goes first. Another day this one goes first. This person has to wait. We're not going to do it that way. We're not going to do it that way. We are going to do it this way. I could be salty about that, but if I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit, he'll use that, even that contention, even that division for my good and for the good of the church. Can you believe that today? So finally, this term walk, what does that actually look like? I want to walk with the Spirit, the parakaleo, right? I want to walk alongside him. What does that mean? Just very simple. If you were out to walk with a, with a friend, what would that look like? Walking with the Spirit includes three things. Pace, presence, and progress. Pace. It's slow. Anybody can do it methodically. Each and every day you get up. And you meet with the Lord. You meet with God. You're walking. And, and, and why is walking such an important exercise? You don't have to be an athletic sprinter. You don't have to be some spiritual giant to get up and meet with the Spirit. All you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and hit that pace. Pace is the first thing. Presence is the second thing. Put off your phone. Turn off your phone. Set it to the side. Put it into away mode, whatever it is. Be present. If you are walking with your homeboy or you're walking with your lady friend or you're walking with whoever and you are on your phone, uh-huh, 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 you're not present with the Spirit. And so what it's saying is when you walk, you're listening, you're active, you're talking, you're engaging, and you're removing distractions. And finally, progress. When you walk, you get somewhere. It might be slow. It might be real, real slow. But as you look back, 
to what you've done, where you have gone, you will see progress. Progress in the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You'll see progress over the span of your life as you walk with the Spirit. So pace, presence, and progress. All right, brothers and sisters, we're going to wrap. Will you answer the call to freedom, church? Will you answer the call to freedom? Will New City West End bind ourselves to one another in love as we walk by the Spirit, trusting in Him? Let's pray that we could do that. Thanks for listening, and God bless.